This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 415 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show, Travis Ortmeier. Now, Travis is one of the strongest men on planet Earth, but his strength also lies in his incredible mental health journey, where following a career-ending injury... He spiraled into both depression and addiction. After a near-suicide attempt, Travis began the journey again, chasing the world's strongest man title. Before we get to this conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience, so all I ask in return is that you share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Travis Ortmeier. Enjoy. Travis, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time, especially right after this competition and uh, coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Uh, well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the, the to our discussion. <laughs> yeah, me too. So, I mean, with it being a, a fresh, you know, thing in your mind, how did the competition go? Uh, you know what? It was uh, it was really hugely successful for me, and it was also a little bit of a, a, a letdown. Uh, <laughs> I, it was hugely successful because I set a post-surgery personal record on uh, the overhead event, pressing events, and then uh, ended up pulling a lifetime PR on the deadlift, uh, mostly because the bar was misloaded. <laughs> and oh, it really? Turned out, <laughs> it was 879 pounds. And uh, that is eight pounds over my all-time best deadlift on a regular bar with regular-sized plates from the floor. Um, so, yeah, I mean, shoot, my that, that original record for me was set in 2008. So <laughs> it, 
it's been turbulent since then. There's been a lot of ups and a huge down in between there and I had to rebuild. And so for me to come back, you know, 12, 13 years later <clears throat> and be able to do something better than I've ever done in my life, you know, that, that, uh, I mean, hell, it, it, there's so much to say about that. So many feelings that I'm having so much, uh, joy, so much, uh, shock so much, but you know, it's, I guess it just says something about human spirit. And if you're willing to push and you're willing to try and you're willing to believe, you can always improve and become something better. So it was really nice to finally prove that message that I've been saying for so long. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I can actually relate as well because I tore my back as a fireman and ended up rehabbing to the point where I became stronger than I ever was before. But it was an absolute nightmare of a journey. Oh, dude, back injuries suck. I've had a couple really bad ones. I've had several little, you know, strains and tweaks, but I've had a couple really, really bad ones that, you know, my first really bad one, I was paralyzed from the waist down for three days or at least unable to move. And I just had searing pain around my hips and down both my legs. Back injuries suck. <laughs> if you are willing to believe and willing to do the work, the body will heal if given the means. And, and with your back injury, you know, coming back and being stronger than ever, you've proven it right there. You know, the body will heal if given the means. And so <clears throat> that's why it's so important to keep that, uh, that mindset. Um, but yeah, anyway, we don't have to carry on with that. We, let's, we can move on. <laughs> well, no, I, I want to I get in, in depth, but I think if we set up, you know, the, like you said, the yeah. beginning part, it's really then going to be the magnet. <laughs> well, no, but it's beautiful. Now, just I, before we get into that, though, an interesting tangent. I've had that experience myself. I've seen other people have that experience when people think there's a certain weight on a bar. And just like you said, they've miscalculated, misloaded, whatever it is, and they ended up pulling more. Before we get into your, you know, your your journey, what has been your observation of of uh, of belief of being able to pull something, even though up to that point, if if you knew what was on the bar, you probably wouldn't be able to pull it. You know, I, I I know that that's the case for a lot of people, but I guess I never really thought that was the case for me. Uh, I never thought that. You know, just kind of a, a, a sneak here or there where somebody slips five on the ends. And, you know, I, I think I'm pulling the same weight. And I've never really noticed that to help me because I've always had this strong belief that that I'm probably stronger than I really am. <laughs> so, uh, but I don't know, man. This, this kind of shoots that whole theory of mine to shit because uh, – <laughs> Uh, you know, I remember pulling on it and thinking, oh, my God, this is the slowest 800 pounds I've ever pulled. This is this feels so heavy. And then it comes out later that it was misloaded by 79 pounds. It was 75 pounds plus the two pound clips on the end. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it just it shoots that whole theory to, to shit. It, it makes me think that maybe I need to start telling my training partners to sneak weights here and there and not tell me the numbers on it because I might just push and get more out of myself than I ever thought possible. 
So it's opened up a whole new series of doors for me to explore. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very, very interesting. It really is. All right. Well, then I, I would love to start at the very beginning of your journey. So there's a lot of value, obviously, even in your, your young life. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, man. Okay. So, <clears throat> well, I'll tell you how uh, my parents came to be because it kind of plays into the story. They They met in... Uh, Dallas, Texas, and they decided they needed to get away from all the shit, just their history and everything. So they just picked a spot and went for it. And that spot just happened to be Lake Tahoe, Nevada, which is probably one of the most beautiful places on earth. Um, I was born there a few years later. And then uh, when I was just turned six, when I had just turned six, we moved to Southern California and, you know, kind of completing this theme of my parents picking a spot and going that, that continued throughout my life. Uh, I moved 14 times before I graduated high school. Wow. Um, not, not a military brat just cause we did <laughs> just cause that was what my mom wanted and whatever my mom wanted, mom got. So I uh, grew up in Southern California, went to, went from there to, to, South Georgia in middle school, sixth grade. I was the fat kid from the West Coast in South Georgia. And you talk about a culture shock. Oh, God. <laughs> and this, this is probably where the rage that fueled my training came from for the next probably 20 years of my life. I was picked on so badly every freaking day. It was, it was just miserable, man. I remember getting gum in my hair, you know, threats, bullying, all kinds of stuff. But, uh, on the flip side, living in South Georgia, my mom had a lot of family there and I had a, a really good, a cousin who became really close to me. Uh, they lived there at the same time. So outside of school, life was nice. Inside school was miserable. Uh, so then that kind of takes me to my weightlifting journey. Um, at 11 years old, you know, when we, this is probably, I don't know, six months after we moved to South Georgia, uh, I started mowing lawns to save money to buy my own weight set. And, uh, I ended up getting a little cheap, flimsy Walmart brand weight set for $55. And, uh, it didn't come with the weights. I didn't realize that. But my mom, you know, my mom was proud of me. She was proud because I, you know, I had worked hard. I'd saved my money for something that I wanted. So she went ahead and bought the weights. It was like twenty-two bucks for those plastic things. But <clears throat> those plastic weights were just—they uh, came with dumbbells. They didn't come with a barbell. So I wanted to have something to do some bench press with. And uh, I went in the kitchen. And I took the uh, broom out of the closet, sawed the end off of it, and used that as my bar. <laughs> my mom came looking for it later and was like, uh, you know, where's my where's my broom? And I tried to play it off like I had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but that was my first weight set. And, you know, up until that time, I'd always wanted to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger, these monsters that were larger than life. I thought that was awesome. So, you know, I started bodybuilding as much as I knew bodybuilding to be at that point. 
Um, we moved from South Georgia to North Georgia when I started high school. <clears throat> and again, my first day there, I had someone threaten me saying that if I kept looking at his boy's girlfriend, there's going to be trouble. And I, to this day, I don't even know who his girlfriend was. <laughs> the same thing happened you know, to my but, son the other day. He got accused of looking at a girl's boobs and she just made it up for attention. He's 13. He's like, dude, I, have, I, I don't even like her. She's not even attractive. So, yeah. <laughs> Women can get men into a lot of trouble just with their mouth. That's for sure. Oh, man. It's just, you know... I, let's just say that I'm glad those days are behind me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was more fuel for the fire. So, you know, I, I started uh, working out. That was my life. Ninth grade through high school. I went to school because I had to, but I got home and I never opened a book. I was in my garage training five or six days a week, absolutely killing myself with these routines that I would get out of Flex magazine meant for bodybuilders who were seasoned and, you know, definitely enhanced. <laughs> I was trying to keep up with that Air shit. Air quotes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so I'm just some some dumb kid reading these routines and just going berserk with it. But, you know, I, I think that's kind of set up the foundation for my work ethic and my uh, durability, so to speak. So, <clears throat> uh, so, yeah, from 11 years on, I was training. That was my life. Now, it's interesting uh, that you, you, you talk about that because, uh, you know, there's a lot of men and women that have been on this show. And when we think about, you know, in our profession, think about, you know, PTSD is, is a big thing. Oh, it's what we see on our course, what we, you know, the, the military see when they're in combat, you know. But now there's a real understanding, kind of paradigm shift that, Yes, that's absolutely an element, but what we bring into the profession is a huge contributor. And a lot of the men and women that ended up, you know, in, in an addiction field or even, God forbid, suicide, that was definitely a compounding element. So when I, you know, hear a lot of these men and women speak, there is abuse, there is, you know, alcoholism in, in the family, there is, you know, bullying. And Justin Wren's a perfect example. He's a, um, heavyweight UFC fighter. And he was exactly the same as you were talking about. He was the fat kid, just like in the movies. They'd invite him to a party, tell him it was uh, a costume party, and he'd be there in his Transformers outfit, and everyone else would just stand there and laugh at him. So <laughs> it's it's you know it, it's that funny sucks. in one respect, but when we look back, the, but if the you're damage, that guy, yeah, sucks. the damage bullying does for like the rest of someone's life <laughs> is horrendous. <laughs> well, you know, to to touch on that. <sighs> It's kind of a fine line what bullying does. I think a little bit of bullying brings out the best in people. Because if I wasn't bullied, I don't think I would have been fueled by rage to become something greater than I ever thought that I could be. But on the other side, it's like, would I be as messed up of an individual <laughs> if that had happened? <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of a hard, fine line. And I think... It's definitely something that needs to be talked about more, studied more. <clears throat> and then we have to have adults who are just, you know, taught enough or, or studied enough or are seasoned by their own experience and then are able to guide kids who are bullied through that mess and teach them how to use it in a positive way. Well, how do you, how do you think that we – 
<laughs> reframe the way that we're, you know, that some people are raising their kids too. Because, I mean, the, the, there's obviously that one side, like, well, you need to toughen up, you know, stand up to the bullies. But the other side is, how do we teach some of these children to stop being little shitbags in the first place? You know, there's a lot of, a lot of ways, all of which have a downside. Uh, it's something I've thought about because, you know, on the one hand, there is... And excuse my crudeness, but the pussification of the modern youth. And we teach our kids to be so goddamn soft. It is kind of disgusting. Which, I mean, it's cool because they're nice to each other, you know. But, you know, it, when situations arise where they need to be tough, they melt. You know, I think snowflake has become a term for that. Um I think that kids should be taught how to stand up for themselves and they should also be taught restraint. So there is a time to turn the other cheek, but there is a time to stand your ground. And when you stand your ground, you fight until the fight is over and you leave it right there. You don't, you don't start stomping on the, the loser. You don't start name calling. You don't start, you know, trash in that person because if you degrade that person after you've beaten them down you create resentment now if you have two guys that start fighting one wins and then they both walk away they usually shake each other's hand and that's it man it's done but if you have two guys who get in a fight and the winner starts kicking the loser while he's down and spitting on him and they laughing at him and making fun of him or calling him names or whatever that guy on the ground is going to hate that person and he's probably going to look for revenge. <clears throat> so I think it comes to, it comes to our adults. It comes to our grownups teaching the youth the proper way to do things. There's a right and a wrong way to fight. And, you know, there's definitely a time to fight, but there's a definitely a time to kind of walk away from that fight, you know, and we're forced to have to walk away and then call on somebody else to take care of our battles for us. And that, I think that kind of, you know, one, it, it doesn't teach the person responsibility. It doesn't teach the person accountability. It doesn't teach the person how to have any self-respect. And then it also gives government entities way too much control. And I kind of, I don't like that balance. You know, I'm, I'm, a borderline conspiracy theorist. I don't, there's some stuff that's way out there, but I don't like when schools have control of our children because they are in essence, the guardians during school hours. And even they're pushing it to where there's guardians after hours and before hours. And I don't think that that's okay. You know, it takes power away from the parents and that's not right in my mind. Yeah, well, I agree. I actually had an incident with my son's school. He ended up in a psych facility, and it was, you know, completely um, just wrong. I mean, there's no way, shape, or form he should have been anywhere close to that. Um, and so, yeah, and again, I was completely taken That's out of my wild. hands. So, yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely 100% agree. But I think with the with the kindness and compassion thing, the way I agree with you, the way it's been framed is just like, oh, you know, just just don't just walk away, which I think walk away is absolutely right. But the way you empower these children and the way I think that you reduce the bullying element as you promote physical activity, you promote martial arts, you promote all these things that are hard for children, 
but also foster that camaraderie, that team player, you know, that that sportsmanship, and therefore I think eliminate a lot of the insecurities that lead to bullying. That's a very good point right there. <clears throat> One, it 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 takes care of the excess energy problem. You know, when you've got excess energy and you know where to put it, that pent up energy has to come out somewhere and it's usually negative. But then on the other hand, you're, you're right. It teaches team building. It teaches camaraderie and it teaches self-respect. I think you, you have a very good point on that. Absolutely. Right. Well, with your, um, with your journey lifting, so was it bodybuilding you first went into? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, uh, Basically, because I saw Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno and, you know, bodybuilders that made TV appearances. So I didn't really know of anything else. Um, I did two bodybuilding shows in high school and they were fundraisers for the football team. I wasn't on that football team. So when it came to the actual competition, even though I was the only person who knew what all the poses were, <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice is still a little screwed up from all the, all the competing and flying home. <laughs> <No problem. laughs> um, even though I was the only person who knew what a damn lat spread was, for instance, I didn't place. And I thought that was total bullshit. You know, I was pretty pissed off. And I realized there that there's a very subjective nature to bodybuilding. And I didn't like that. So, you know, to continue my story, you know, how I got into what I do. Um, in college, like let's say the day I graduated from high school, uh, we moved to Houston. My parents had already lived there for about six months and I finished high school with a friend and his family. But the day I graduated, my mom wanted me home. So we started driving. Um, and then I went to work bodybuilding and while I was in college, I met a guy named Marshall White, and I say his name because he actually went to World's Strongest Man with me in 2009. So, or way, way later in the journey at that point. This We're talking uh, 2000, the year 2000 is when I met him. And he was a power lifter, so he talked me into doing some power lifting with him. And I thought, you know, this is cool, let's give it a shot because it's something different, and bodybuilding is well, bodybuilding kind of sucks for me. So, <laughs> um, so we get into powerlifting and we end up doing a, a powerlifting meet. <clears throat> and uh, it was a relatively large meet at the University of Texas. There was like 250 lifters and they were just running people through. And uh, he and I both ended up bombing out on the squats. And that's the first lift of the day. So in powerlifting, you got squats, bench, deadlift. If you bomb out on one, you don't get credit for the full meet. And at the time, we thought you weren't allowed to complete the full meet. So we thought we just had to leave. So here we were spending 250 bucks or 300 bucks each, trying to sign up for everything and travel and do all that. Um, so poor college students, that was a big kick in the nuts. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so we uh, we came home and he and I kept powerlifting, kept training for for strength. But at the time, I was going to f to school and I was working full time, and uh, I was waiting tables, which takes a lot of damn energy. 
And, and I had built my whole schedule around training. For instance, Saturdays, I wouldn't wait tables because Saturday was squat day and there was no working after squat day. That's just my life. <clears throat> so I started thinking, you know, maybe I should kind of rearrange my focus a little bit. And I, I might just need to focus more on school and then I could work more and save up some money. And I'll come back to training really hard later on. <clears throat> well, I think God had other plans for me because a few weeks later after thinking that Marshall came up to me and he says, Hey man, I saw this contest. It's Texas strongest man. And I want to go do it. And I'm sitting here thinking strong man. Like you mean like those guys on TV? We'll never be that strong. What are you fucking crazy? <laughs> but nevertheless, he, he signed up and, uh, you know, being his training partner and friend, I was going to go up and help. So, uh, the contest was in Denison, Texas, which is right on the border of Oklahoma. It's about a six-hour drive straight north of Houston. And it was August 2nd, so it was hot as hell, absolutely hotter than hell. And uh, I remember driving up there, and you know, Marshall was getting pretty nervous about the contest. He was just saying – uh, you know, the whole way, you know, I, I just don't want to finish last. You know, I, I want to go up, have a good showing. I just don't want to finish last. And uh, when we arrive, he's signing up for the contest. And then I'm talking to the promoter and he looks at me and says, hey, man, you're here. Why don't you just sign up? He, you know, now I realize he just wanted my 50 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I looked at him and I was like, you know what? What the hell? I'll give it a shot. Okay. And then that's when my life changed because Marshall looked up at me and he says, man, I'm glad you signed up because now, at least now I know I won't take last. Oh, thanks, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, shit, man. I didn't know I had a competitive bone in my body until he said those words. That changed my life. <clears throat> so the next day, you know, it's, it's August 2nd, like I said, 2002. And uh, hotter than hell, the implements burning your skin. But I had more fun than I'd ever had in my entire life doing anything. I absolutely ate it up, man. I, I remember every night for the next six months after that competition, I would dream of the implements. I would dream of how the farmer's walks felt in my hands, how the tacky felt smelled and felt on my skin when I was lifting stones, which would tear your forearms open. I remember the, how hot the tire was as we were trying to flip it in the sun. <laughs> and I remember how that super yoke, which is an apparatus you carry across your shoulders and uh, pick it up and walk. I think we had an 80-foot distance. We had to walk with 650 pounds. I remember how that crushed my soul out of my body. <laughs> but I had so much fun. That, uh, you know, God's message was received. It was like, oh, you thought you were going to go to school and do and work full time. Nope. <laughs> Here's what you're doing. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I went full bore into strongman and slowly but surely work and school kind of fell by the wayside. <laughs> and uh, strongman was it, man. In 2004, I earned my pro card. 2005, I did my first professional competition, and I started kicking ass pretty soon, pretty early on. 
Uh, I made it to the world championships in 2005, my rookie year. So, you know, it was kind of a, it was a, a good fit. I loved it and I was good at it. And that was, that was the beginning of, you know, the history for me. That was, that was, that changed my life forever. And here I am. <laughs> so what, what was it that you did differently to a lot of the other competitors that allowed this fat implant from California <laughs> to become this, you know, strongman phenom? What, what, what was it a mindset thing? Was it a training choice thing? Uh, you know, it was probably a little of both. Um, I think the mindset was essential, you know, to put it mildly, I'm a little crazy. I got a few loose screws and probably a few that are missing now. And, uh, strongman is a good fit for that type of mentality. <laughs> you know, when it comes to working hard, if it's something I love, I don't even notice it as working hard and I've got an extremely high pain threshold. So, you know, pushing through the training when you're carrying a rock that's ripping into your chest and tearing skin off and, you know, and you can't breathe or panic is setting in because your, your chest, your lungs and your heart feel like the life is being squeezed out of them while you're carrying something heavy, but you just keep telling yourself to keep moving. I guess I'm pretty good at that kind of thing. So I, to sum it up, my ability to suffer is greater than most people's. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I mean, it's so pertinent to our profession as well, because that's that's just it, that whole you can always stay, take one more step mentality. And it's so easy, just like you talked about with the kind of, you know, slow, snowflake philosophy, you know, I think that's more of a mindset than anything else. But yeah, it's so easy to, to tap out, to quit, to, you know, to give up, to not try. But with our professions, you can't, you know, you're in the middle of a structure fire, you have to facilitate that rescue or get yourself out or get your partner out. Or if you're, you know, a police officer, you have to engage in combat. So that mindset, physically and mentally is so important for, for, you know, the audience is listening now. That's, you're exactly right. And, you know, I can't ever liken it to war because that's probably next level intense. Not probably that's got to be next level intense. Or when you're like, you say you're in a structure fire and you have to pull someone out or you literally will die. It's, uh, in my head, when I'm training to do these things, it's the same scenario going on. So while I'm probably reaching 50% of the, the potential that I could, if I was literally in a life or death situation, like what you're talking about, uh, I'm, I'm pushing into that 50% realm. Whereas most people probably give up at 10%. <clears throat> and you know, when you never know what you're really capable of, unless you stop worrying about whether you live or die on it. And there's, there's been a few times that in training, I remember laying on the scorching concrete in Houston, Texas, where we trained, we trained outside of a storage unit, a big metal building with a black, a black parking lot on the other side. So it was hot as hell. And I remember finishing a medley and breathing. I, I couldn't even feel that I was breathing my heart was beating so hard and I was throwing up so hard and then I'd roll over onto that scorching concrete. Like I said, and I looked up at the sky and I said, God, 
please not today, not like this. And I was referring to, please, God, don't let me die because I'm actually worried right now that I'm going to. And that happened several times, man. (laughs) But it's that, you know, it's that mindset where there's only a few people that are willing to push themselves into a situation that becomes life or death. And, and that mentality, I don't want to say it's being lost, but I definitely say I can say that it's not being trained in a large portion of our community at large nowadays. Yeah. Well, and I think the problem that I see, you know, from the outside looking in is because our life is so comfortable and it's beautiful. Like I'm sitting here in, in Florida now and if it gets too hot in the house, the AC will kick on. If it gets too cold, the heat will kick on. You know, I mean, I've got a roof over my head. So it's a very gentle existence that a lot of us have. So to go to an extreme place is much further from baseline than if we'd had this conversation 200 years ago and we just moved to the US from Europe. And we were living out in the, you know, in the sticks. So I think that's one of the the challenges I see is incrementally getting yourself to a really awful place and then pushing that awful place further and further and further away because awful to someone who hasn't really ever pushed himself is they just broke their iPhone. Well, we've got a shitload further to go for that guy. That's actually a really good point. Yeah. Pushing into being uncomfortable is way off of baseline. Whereas uncomfortable was probably daily living a few hundred years ago. That's that's a really good point. I hadn't even thought about that yet. <clears throat> that just means that training the next generation of strongmen is going to be that much harder. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think that's what is good about strongmen. So I, I, you know, very, very amateur level, I use strongman to train myself as a tactical athlete. I use it. I, I coach a class every week and it's a free class of first responders and military and very kind of strongman focused again, strongman movement focused as opposed to actual, you know, competitive strongman. But, um, you know, it, those tools are so good at going to a horrible place. And I talk about this, you know, on here sometimes. If it, if we were doing a snatch, an Olympic movement, my technique would fail before my body would fail. Whereas if you give me a yoke and you stick it on my back and you say, James, walk your skinny ass over to the other side. The only thing stopping me is my mind. And obviously, you know, physically at some point, but it's more of a mental battle because the skill of walking, well, let's say not even a yoke, let's say a sled. I'm pushing a sled. Yeah, I literally push a sled, pulling a car. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it removes that skill element. So now it's, to me, it, it rips open your soul and it's like, all right, let's see if you're a <laughs> pussy or not. Well, you know, on that note, we had the perfect initiation at the unit. And and the unit is the storage unit that we trained at. It's not a clever name or anything. It's just (laughs) the unit in Houston, Texas, in Cypress, Texas, actually. Um, We would do a whole day of training. And then any new people or anybody who felt disgusted with themselves and wanted to do it, we would have this thing called the Unithon. And that was simply you would strap yourself to my dad's Suburban. You know, we had a truck pulling harness. We'd clip you in. And you'd have to drag the Suburban all the way around the storage unit. And there was a little bit of an uphill grade, a little downhill grade, you know, and you had to make four turns, basically. Uh, I think it was about 1,200 feet. But the test was not a matter of how fast you did it or how clean you did it or how whatever. The test was if you did it or if you did not do it. 
If you did not do it, you weren't welcome back. You could take half an hour to finish this thing. It didn't matter. You just had to finish. And believe me, there were some guys who had to rip open their soul to get it across the line. <laughs> and, and then their guts would start coming out their mouths as they were heaving up. <laughs> you know, they throwing up dinner from yesterday. They'd puke so hard. <laughs> yeah, well, you said the heat, too. I mean, the heat is I'm, I'm here in, in central Florida and, and doing those workouts. I would deliberately do it in, in the afternoon because in our gear and the fire service, it is awful. That's the worst thing is trying to offload the heat. So that just adds another layer of suck to that whole thing. We had a few firefighters that trained with us, and they said the same thing. They say, you know, it was, it was perfect to learn how to embrace the suck and, you know, keep pushing through the humidity and the heat, maintaining composure under extreme duress when you got heavy weights on your back or carrying them or whatever, but you're sweating so bad you can't see because sweat's pouring in your eyes, you know, and the humidity is just – for any of the people out there listening, if you haven't trained in a hot, humid environment, then you don't know what hot is. You know, I got people here in Reno that are like, oh, God, it's so hot outside. It's 105. And it's like, no. Look, OK, if you're standing in the direct sun, it's pretty hot. It is nothing compared to a 90 or 95 degree day in Houston with that 90 percent humidity going. And we trained in days that were 114. Oh, dude, we had a nice bank sign next to us with the temperature on it so we got to see exactly how hot <laughs> it was where we were training but yeah i mean <clears throat> there's a there's definitely an element to learning how to embrace the suck and push yourself when you're training in that kind of awful environment with strongman like you say with snatches and this is where crossfit is a big fail in my mind they want you to do these high rep sets you know sets of 20 reps or 25 reps on a highly technical move like a snatch or a clean you know this that's where injuries come in because you can't keep that kind of precision for that many reps it's just a terrible idea yeah well i'm a big advocate of crossfit however I, i've been in in that kind of arena now for 14 years and i absolutely hands down agree with the element of the skill and that's the problem is if you don't walk into that movement philosophy as a coach and an athlete with a, a bucket load of humility, then the chance of getting hurt is definitely higher. The people that move well, that, that incrementally load, that, you know, learn the movement patterns and get the mobility, you know, obviously that high intensity interval element is very good for what we do. But it's, you know, there as people, you know, as sedentary people, we don't move very well. So you really have to be humble and, and work towards, like you said, that skill acquisition to do it safely. Absolutely. And CrossFit, CrossFit's badass for, for training endurance. And, and you learn, you have to learn how to embrace the suck in CrossFit. Absolutely. Um, for sure. But yeah, that, you know, even, even the most skilled athletes would probably still struggle to keep good form on a max effort, 20 rep set of snatch. <laughs> yeah no I, I agree i mean we see it all the time so yeah <laughs> um well speaking of that so you know my, after my back injury as we said earlier you know i i had a, a real kind of complete reverse engineer self-assessment like how the hell did i do it because i was doing a lot of things correctly on paper um 
you know, before we get into your individual injuries, when you look back now, you know, Travis at 2021, were there any elements of your training that you now retroactively think may have contributed to the injuries that you started receiving? Absolutely. Um, and, and number one, first and foremost, because the first big tear that I ever had was a peck, but it was, uh, it was too close to a competition for me to do anything about it. In fact, it was 2008, May of 2008, and I had just gotten a ticket after talking to the promoter of uh, Champions League in – actually, this time it was an IFSA series in uh, Holland. And uh, he had just bought my ticket. The next day, I'm doing incline dumbbell press with you know 150-pound dumbbells. And I was going to do two sets of 10. It didn't feel right, so I decided to just do one set of 15. And on rep number 12, I felt this big rip off my arm bone. And I ended up tearing pretty much my entire upper pec off. And, uh, you know, I was like, well, shit, I got to compete because he just spent $1,200 on a ticket and I don't want to be that guy. And uh, so I went out, I competed, I still took second. And then two weeks after that, I had Madison Square Garden, which was a big super series show. Went out and competed there, and uh, I won that one, thankfully. But the next weekend was probably one of the heaviest, most brutal contests of all time. It was called Fortissimus, and uh, went out and competed in that. So these were really big shows with pretty good prize money, and uh, I just didn't have time to fix it. So I'm still I'm sitting here with a hole in my chest because uh, I never had that tendon repaired. And I think that comes back to – where it started was high school. And, you know, when you're in high school, bench is all important. That's it. How much you bench. And I would bench three times a week. It was supposed to be light, medium, and heavy. But with my intensity and my freaking loose screws and, and you know, bad switches in my brain, <laughs> light, medium, and heavy workouts turned into heavy, heavier, and stupid heavy. <laughs> and that was three times a week. So, I think I just built up scar tissue or, you know, some kind of problems that manifested later because my pecs seem to be a problem. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but I think as far as training methodologies, I don't think the training that I did later on after – 2003, when I, I started training with my mentor, Jim Glassman, I met him in an amateur competition and uh, he taught me some West Side principles because he had trained at West Side. And if you know anything about West Side Barbell, those guys are nuts. And so it fit my mentality perfectly. And it kind of reined me in just a little bit and had, gave me structure. Uh, but the way that I injured myself was when I would start thinking about where I should be rather than where I currently am. And I would train for where I should be or where I thought I was rather than where the numbers on paper actually showed I was. And, you know, when I'm training, I'm a really intense individual. And if I'm not hitting what I want to hit, I find a way to do it, which pays off huge in a competition but if you're training that way, you are walking a fine line between broken and healthy. And quite often, I tripped over that line into broken. 
<laughs> well, we see that a lot in in athletics, especially I think with with strongman. I mean, I had uh, Kristen Rhodes on the show and um, uh, Matt Wenning. So you know, there's, there's a lot of these men and women that when they're first in this profession, they're about performance. And then there's like, as you said, there's a, there's that kind of gray area where f- performance is at the expense of wellness. And then we start seeing injury. We start seeing, you know, uh, obesity and heart disease and some of these things. They're winning, winning these titles, but they're actually killing themselves at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, <sighs> If you want to be the best, you have to be willing to put yourself through things that other people are not willing to do themselves. And so that kind of that necessity breeds athletes that are willing to push themselves into that territory and willing to sacrifice themselves along the way. And so me being one of those people, uh, when I let myself get out of control in training, it would always result in an injury, almost always. <clears throat> and I mean, I could go through a, a list of injuries, but let's just say I've injured everything from head to toe. <laughs> um, but then you have guys who are smart and they find people to to talk to. They find therapy, like like physical therapy. They find uh, all sorts of treatments, you know, massage, active release, all, all kinds of stuff, chiropractics, um, into nutrition and stuff like that. And the guys who do that the best, the guys who find the recovery tools and they stay, they pay attention to their new nutrition, um, they're the ones who get through those injuries. And then, you know, out of that group of people who can get through their injuries, you got the ones who have the mental intensity to keep pushing after yet another injury because every time you get injured, it kind of takes away a piece of your soul. It takes away a piece of that drive and it makes you a little more afraid. Um, so you've got the guys who are tough enough to get injured, find a way to fix it, rehab it, come back, and then they fade away after a few more years, maybe a couple more injuries. But then you have guys who have gotten injured over and over again, and they just keep finding new ways to rehab and to come back stronger and to keep fighting. And uh, you know, guys like that are few and far between. There's only a few guys who have actually been able to get through some really serious injuries and come back stronger afterward. And uh, you know, those are the people I'm most impressed with. You know, you got the guys who come on strong, they make huge gains, they hit huge weights, and it's really impressive, like, wow, okay, you know, but let's see him in a few years. What kind of man is he? What kind of uh, heart does he have to keep going when the chips are down? You know, and I think it was uh, Bill Kazmaier, world's strongest man in 80, 81, and 82. He's a guy that does the, the commentary on world's strongest man. He said that the true measure of a man is not what he does when he's on top. It's what he does when he gets knocked down. And that always resonated with me (laughs) because let's just be honest. I've been knocked down more than than most. (laughs) Well, that's a a great segue you just gifted me. So let's talk about that. So kind of lead me in injury-wise to 2011 and then, you know, what those next few years were like for you. Ah, yeah. (laughs) So – well, let's go into uh, 
2010 World's Strongest Man Finals. I was on fire. I came out. I won the first event. I was third on the keg toss within a second of first. Um, and then the log press, I was feeling great. Uh, I think we had somewhere in the high 380s, 390s. Close, we'll just call it 400 pounds. That sounds better. Close to 400 pounds on the log. Um, it was feeling really good. And it was my weakest event. I knew that. The rest of the events were all really good for me. Um, but there was a small gap, little crack in the mats. And when I do a log, I do a uh, kind of a modified squat jerk, which is, you know, when I, I jump, I push the weight up, I drop down, and I spread my legs wide rather than front to back like a split jerk. Um, so my foot kind of crossed over that gap, and I pushed the log out in front of me just a little bit. So my plan was to bring it back to my shoulders and go right back up with it. It's, it's something I've done many times. I know I can feel the line when it's off. And usually when I get that recoil from dropping the weight down and that stretch reflex in the muscles, I come up with even more force. So I knew it was a weight that was going up, but in order to do that, I got to get my feet back under me. And while I was trying to bring my foot in, it kind of got hung up on the mat just long enough that the log came down with my foot still out and it cracked something in my ankle, in the bottom of my ankle slash side of my foot area. It, it ended up being one of the peroneus muscles that tore off and it took a chunk of the bone with it. So needless to say, it was painful. It sucked. <laughs> Uh, that was it for me on log that day. Um, then the way they did worlds, they had three events the first day, three events the second day in the finals. Um, so that was the last event for that day, which was great because it gave me time to rest and for my ankle to swell and all the pain to really settle in there before having to try and get up and get it moving and working the next day. <laughs> um, the three events the next day, which are great events for me, it was uh, an 800-pound frame carry, uh, car deadlift for reps, and then Atlas Stones, three of my best events. So normal circumstances, I, I'm top. I, I feel like I could win any of those. Obviously, it could go either way, but uh, with a broken ankle, an 800-pound frame carry is a bit of a problem. Um, I still ended up doing it. I still beat a couple guys, uh, but I've got a great video from the front where you can see when I pick it up and take a step, the whole thing tips to the left, and I'm basically I'm I'm walking or I'm limping with 800 pounds in my hands oh my <laughs> for about 30 feet or so. Um, so it was one of those grin and bear it moments and hope that it doesn't break worse, but. Uh, I did all right on the car deadlift because I didn't have to move my feet very much. Uh, but, you know, stones didn't go my way. And I ended up falling back into fifth place, which, I mean, it's still, I guess, pretty cool. It was fifth place, fifth in the world with a broken ankle. Um, but it was really depressing, to say the least. Uh, I was fifth place in 2008, fifth place in 2009, and now fifth place in 2010. It seemed like I couldn't get out of that fifth place spot. 
<clears throat> but uh, it weighed on me heavily. It, it That ankle hurt for a long time, and it really wreaked havoc on my training. Um, and, you know, that was part of the reason that I got deeper into what was already going on at the time, but I had a, a painkiller addiction, which uh, started out innocently enough with a doctor saying, well, man, you, you probably need these because of what you do, you go through so much pain, it'll help you sleep at night, it'll help you blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, okay, yeah, let's try this. And, you know, deep down, I knew it was a bad idea. So I'm not trying to blame anybody but myself, but you know, you got a professional kind of whispering in your ear what it is you really want to hear. So you're like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So I'm sitting here taking all these painkillers and muscle relaxers, and and that addiction became full-blown and a serious problem for the next couple of years. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, with that being just one of the things going on, and then this ankle giving me so much trouble, uh, you know, my mindset started to falter. Um, and, and it's kind of a weird thing because, you know, when, you, when you're so used to being so driven and so focused, and then that gets a little lax, you kind of, it kind of snowballs into bigger problems. Because that focus kept you out of doing stupid shit in the past. That focus gave you reason not to do whatever things you shouldn't be doing. And I started doing things I shouldn't be doing. And, you know, my training was kind of, I was still training hard, but I wasn't as focused on it. And the depression kind of kicked in and I would drink a little bit more often with the painkillers kind of off and on. It wasn't a steady thing, but it was more than it should have been. And that just exacerbated the problem. Um, you know, on, on top of that, I've, I've got a family. I had a, a son and a wife and my son at that time was only, you know, a year and two years old during 2010 and 2011. Um, and then I had to compete because it was part of my income. And I was just in, I was in so much pain and so miserable, and yet I'd still have to go and compete. And I remember one of my friends was getting married, and my wife's like, well, we need the money. You need to go compete. And, uh, you know, normally, yes, that's 100% the way I wanted to go, but I was really hoping that she would say, no, you need to stay home to give me the excuse to back out of it. And uh, that's just not the way it went. So I competed, and I was miserable, and I was pushing my foot. And that began to break me down mentally. And, you know, I, I still made it about two years with that. But after 2012 or through 2012, I just got miserable. I got sick of it, man. And uh, about summer of 2012, I, I kind of slowed down on training. And I kind of started screwing up the rest of my life pretty good. Um I, I had split with my wife at the time. Um, <clears throat> she uh, she had moved out with my son, and we were trying to work things out. Trying to, we, she's from England, so we were going to move to England and kind of reset over there. 
and get away from Houston and whatever. Um, but you know, my brain was so foggy because I was taking so many painkillers and, and just being stupid. And, and I just, I, I sensed something was off, but I kept ignoring it. You know, my intuition screamed at me that this was a problem. There was something wrong and I didn't listen. And by November, it was actually the absolute worst day of my life was uh, November 25th, 2012. And it was the day that I had taken my now ex-wife and my son to the airport so that they could fly to England. Uh, I was under the idea, the assumption that she was going over to kind of find a place for us to get set up and I was going to stay behind, sell the house and, you know, do all that stuff. Uh, but that little voice in the back of my head was screaming at me. It was just, you know, saying red flag, red flag. No, this is wrong. Don't do it. <laughs> Dear God, don't do it. Uh, but of course, you know, that person in the front trying to rationalize everything said, oh, no, this is going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Just have faith. Well, I should have listened to my intuition because uh, – when I dropped him off at the airport, the absolute worst moment of my life was watching the two of them walk through the doors into the airport and my body and everything in me just broke. I started driving home. I had to pull over because I, I started to cry and I knew that my world was shattering. But I was so, I was, you know, pardon the term, I was so fucked up that yeah, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do with it. And I, I didn't know where to get help. I didn't know how to get help. I didn't know, uh, you know, and, and to kind of back it up a little bit, I had started dabbling a few months prior to this when I was home by myself all the time. Uh, I had a, an ex-girlfriend offer me some crystal meth and uh, I guess she had gotten into it and I was looking for a way to kind of escape the pain that was in my life at the time because I was pretty miserable on my own. So I started, you know, dabbling and, and kind of allowing that shit into my life. And, and that stuff's a nightmare. It really does screw with your brain. It screws with your ability to think. And so that's why, you know, that my brain was telling me or my mind was telling me, have faith. This will work out. Trust in her. And everything else in my body was screaming the opposite, telling me this is a huge mistake, you know, but that, that was just, uh, that's just what happens, I guess, when, when you can't think straight. <laughs> and I know I'm kind of mixing the story up just to kind of be clear. Uh, my wife and I had split up. We were going to get back together, but, you know, at the airport, Letting her and my son go, yeah, I rationalized it was the right thing to do, but my body was screaming at me to say it was absolutely the worst thing ever. And when I got home, I, I told myself, look, Travis, this, this hurts so bad. This is so miserable that uh, you've got one week. You got one week to just get as, as messed up as you want, kind of hide out just kind of crawl in your little hole, whatever, just you got a week to get as 
screwed up as you want. But then after that, you got to get your shit together and really, you know, get moving forward and start pushing to get your ass over to England. Well, that one week turned into four years of misery and heartbreak and, you know, just hell. Basically it was, that was my darkness. That was my descent into absolute hell. But, uh, you know, it didn't just stop with losing my wife and my son. It, it, I ended up losing my family. I ended up losing my friends. I ended up losing my career. I couldn't stand training. I, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to go to the gym because, you know, at that point it just sucked. So I, I ended up losing, you know, my passion, my love for life. And then when you get to that point, this is what a lot of people don't realize about uh, ex-athletes or, you know, people who have been so focused on one thing their entire life that they built their life around it. And then they retire from that or they lose that thing or they walk away from that thing. Let's just say the NFL player who's worked his whole life to play in the NFL. He's had huge success. After five or 10 years, he retires. And then those guys are lost. I remember seeing an episode of Real Sports with Brian Gumble on HBO. And he was talking about this. And I remember it was during this time. So I was relating heavily. And they were talking about the high numbers of addictions and, and the divorce rate was 75% for ex-athletes, ex-professional athletes. And I'm sitting here like, I'm in that freaking box. And they said, you know, they get to a point where they look in the mirror and they don't recognize the person staring back at them. And I had literally just been there looking in the mirror saying, who the hell is this guy in front of me? I don't even recognize who this is. I had no passion. I didn't, I wasn't doing anything with my life. You know, I'd trained for, for strongman, you know, in one form or another, I'd trained my entire life and I couldn't stand the thought of working out anymore, let alone competing. So who was I? I was lost. And it's, uh, it's easy to, to spiral downward when your mindset is in that zone, in that place. And that's exactly what I did because I didn't have any guidance. I didn't have any help. I didn't have any, any friends or family or anybody around me to really help me. Um, by this point I hadn't driven my family away, but you know, they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't, they didn't even know it was happening probably to the extent that it was happening. You know, it was, uh, it's one of the reasons I tell my story now because there's so many people suffering with the same thing that feel the same way I did. They feel like nobody can help. Nobody is around to do anything. Nobody understands what they're going through, but it's because nobody talks about it that everybody thinks they're alone. And when I let my story out, when I tell people, I'm always shocked with how many people respond and and message me and say, holy crap, man, you know, I just heard this and I'm going through the same thing. What did you do? What can I do? And it's, we can't put this taboo or this shame on people who are messing themselves up. You know, you don't have to 
agree with what they're doing. You don't have to, you know, think that what they're doing is an okay thing, but we have to start understanding that people are going to screw up and hiding it or not talking about it is the worst thing that we can do. Um, that just, you know, for me, it was an isolation. And in that isolation with my brain and the state that it was in, of course I was going to make the wrong decisions. <laughs> that's, that's all I did was wrong decisions. I, I was really, really good at making the absolute worst decision for myself. Um, it was almost like some part of me wanted to destroy everything, burn the world around me, you know, turn everything to ash and then, and then just start over, I guess. Maybe that's what part of me wanted. You know, I don't actually want to admit that if that's the case, but maybe that's what my subconscious was like, yeah, fuck it, man. We're just going to, we're going to redo all of this because you've screwed it up that bad. <laughs> But, uh, <clears throat> so in that descent into madness, into the darkness, um, I was lucky with, with one thing in particular. And that was that I had this little, that little voice in the back of my head that was telling me, you know, red flags is a bad idea. I always had that little voice. It would talk to me every now and then. And it's almost like it was taking notes. And it was telling me, well, you're, you know, you're going to experience this now. And I would go out and the, the rational front brain Travis would say, oh, I'm going to do whatever and make all these mistakes and realize how bad this mistake sucked or that mistake sucked. And the little guy in the back was just taking notes going, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, that one did suck. Let's see what this experience is like. And then front brain Travis would have to go and deal with that <laughs> and suffer and <laughs> and so uh that was that was what that four years became is you know shitty learning experiences and uh i remember asking myself i was at front brain travis was asking rear brain travis how long is this going to go on for man how long am i going to suffer like this and make all these wrong decisions and the answer was immediate it came to me in a split second it said you're going to start over and that was all it said, but I knew exactly what it meant. And, uh, it meant that everything that I had built when I really truly found my passion, which was strong, man, everything that I had built from that point on was going to be destroyed. And I was going to have to rebuild all of it. And, <clears throat> you know, after years of abusing crystal meth, which, uh, you know, as an interesting side note, I, the, the crystal meth became a problem because uh, the painkillers were a problem. I had tried to kick them several times with no success because it sucks when you're really addicted to an opiate. It really, really sucks to come off of them. But with crystal meth, I didn't have those withdrawals. And I thought, well, I can kick this one easy. Let's just use it a little longer so I don't need the opiates anymore. Yeah, well, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> Meth was much worse. Um, so anyway, uh, back to where I was. I, I think I was talking about how I was going to have to restart. Um, you know, getting through that madness 
and all that pain and, and everything. I was losing weight. I was losing people. I was losing strength. Uh, the first day that I walked back into the gym after cleaning myself up and getting the hell out of Houston, um, it was January 15th, 2016. I weighed 227 pounds, and that was the exact same weight that I was at that very first contest I was telling you about a few minutes ago, 227 pounds. And I had been 341 at one point. So I literally lost everything I had gained in strongman. (laughs) But, uh, you know, for, for anybody listening, if they're spiraling and they're seeing this, or if they're seeing it in someone else, you know, the poor decisions come obviously one at a time and they may not seem like a lot. So you got to think you make a bad decision or you tell yourself some negative thought and you start focusing on all the bad things that are in your life. It's one little piece at a time. And it's almost like you don't notice it until you notice that that's all you're thinking about. So it starts with one negative thought a day, it goes into two, and then it goes into, you know, 300 negative thoughts in a day. And you don't even notice it accumulating, but you just start spiraling downward. So at some point in that hell, it was actually at one point in particular, it was in 2015, it was, uh, Uh, I was still living in the house that my family had lived in, but I had lost it to foreclosure. I was just kind of on borrowed time. I remember sitting on the side of my bathtub and I was in such pain, such mental anguish because, you know, everything had been taken away and I'd been trying to get a hold of my son because I talked to him almost every day during this whole time. He was the first thing I did in the morning was call my son every day. Um, and it was probably, you know, yet another time of getting a voicemail or getting my ex-wife and her saying, well, he's too busy. He doesn't want to talk right now and just hanging up on me. And that kind of, that was heartbreaking. That was like a knife to the heart every freaking time. So it hit me particularly bad one time. And I had this, uh, 40 caliber Beretta and it was real, real nice gun. I freaking loved it. I wish I still had it. But uh, I had these really nasty bullets in it, critical defense rounds. They, they're they a hollow point with some rubber ball in the front. So it goes in and makes a real big mess before it opens up. <laughs> um, I remember sitting on the side of my bathtub holding on to this thing saying, you know, I just can't take anymore. I can't do it. You know, I've lost so much. I'm I'm hurting so bad. I can't do this. And I remember putting the gun in my mouth and then thinking, oh, man, you know, I don't want to make a mess of my brains and shit all over the ceiling and the wall behind me because then some poor bastard is going to have to clean that up. And then I thought, well, that's a really funny thing to think about when you're sitting here with (laughs) trying to kill yourself. (laughs) Like, what? what the fuck is wrong with you, Travis? Jesus Christ, man. Who gives a shit if someone's got to clean up the mess? Excuse me. Uh, Sinuses are all screwed up still from that travel and competition. 
Um, anyway, so so there I was kind of laughing at myself in some of the worst pain that I'd ever had. Uh, and I decided I, I can't, I can't do this. I don't want to do this, but shit, man, what else do I have? You know, I put the gun down and I start thinking, what else do I have? I've got nothing. I've had this taken away and that taken away. And then here I am going through these, this list of negative thoughts. And I noticed there was a trend. I kept going through all of what I'd lost all of the time. So all that I thought about was negativity and pain and suffering. And it seemed to me, the more I thought about that, the worse it got and the more pain and suffering I would get. And, uh, you know, I noticed that it was one little thing at a time and it would just increase gradually. So it was that spiral downward and the spiral just got bigger as you go farther down. So I thought, well, let's see if we can reverse that, man. Let's see if, you know, maybe there's a way I can change this momentum and find something good. And then if I find something good, maybe I'll start thinking about good things. It was just a literally a life or death decision came to me spur of the moment. So I thought, all right, let's try it. And I'm sitting there on the side of my bathtub and I start looking around. I'm like, what do I have that's good? What do I have? Anything that's good. And I'm sitting here in a house that I've lost full of stuff that was just crap that I didn't need. You know, just, <laughs> just to put it mildly, when you're a tweaker, you accumulate stupid shit. <laughs> you you become a bit of a hoarder and you just have stuff you don't need because you think it might be worth something or useful at some point. And I had so much crap everywhere. And I'm just looking at it going, oh man, I got a life full of crap. I got, look, I'm losing my house. I'm losing this. I went, no, 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 stop, Travis. Fine. The good thing. And I look around, I got nothing around me. So I put my head in my hands and I'm looking at the ground and then I see my feet and my feet, because I had been injecting crystal meth, my feet were pretty messed up. I had mild cellulitis and uh, they were really dried and cracked. And But then I moved my toes and I realized I have full function of my feet. And I got this kind of hint of a good feeling. And then I kind of expanded upon that. I said, you know what? Okay. Wait a second. Okay, with I've got I can use my feet. I can stand up. I if I can stand up and walk around, that means I can get the hell out of here. That means with my own two feet, I can get up and I can go anywhere I freaking want to go. And with that thought, I got this surge of this feeling that I hadn't had in years. And that feeling was joy. It was the first time I had felt joy in years. And it felt so good. I just kind of sat with it and just <laughs> held on to it as long as I could. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a trying day, obviously, with uh, going from one extreme to another, emotionally speaking. Uh, I, I laid down. I went to sleep. I got up the next day and I said, I want that feeling again. I want that feeling. And uh, so I started looking around. I started looking for something. And I couldn't find anything. And that's when I realized, okay, I got to really bring scale back what I'm looking for. I got to start looking for little things. And I said, okay, I got my feet and I got my momentum there. I got my feet 
I've got my hands. How about that? I got my feet and I got my own two hands. With my hands and my feet, I can go anywhere and I can do anything that I want. And that feeling came back. And it was just that same surge of joy. And I thought, this is fucking awesome. And I rode that as far as I could that day. I obviously, I, I got high because I was still a drug addict. But I every time I started to feel down, rather than tell myself all the bad things, I said, you've got your own two feet, you got your own two hands. And it started to build momentum. On the third day, I found a third thing. On the fourth day, I found a fourth thing to be grateful for. On the fifth day, I didn't find anything, but I retraced my steps. I went over the four things that I had found, and I realized that I had started changing my momentum. Rather than spiraling downward, I was now spiraling upward, and I could feel the shift. And I'm going to tell you right now, when when you're in a, a shitty place, the people you have around you usually don't want you to start doing better. And I caught that because I brought this new feeling with me. And I remember one person in particular looking at me and saying, how can you be so grateful? What do you have that's worth being grateful for? And I thought, oh, shit, I struck a nerve on that one. Okay, because I had been talking about, you know, all these good things that I had. Well, these few good things that I have. And she was not happy with that. But uh, that meant that I was doing something right because I was shaking people up who wanted to wallow in their own misery and, you know, misery loves company. So they were trying to keep me down with them. <clears throat> and I tried to, to, to share the knowledge and to share the experience. And I don't know, maybe it's had an effect years later, but it didn't at the time. But, you know, that wasn't the important thing. The important thing was it was having an effect on me. And so I rode that wave and I kept going. And it took me about a full year before, well, this was 2015. So it took me a full year of trying before uh, that momentum shifted enough that I got myself out of the hell that I was in. And uh, I, I ended up leaving Houston for Reno and, uh, my parents had moved to Reno two years prior. My mom had gotten sick, so she needed someone to come take care of her a little bit. And that was kind of my ticket out, man. So I, uh, I built it all up around my ride to freedom and changing my perspective and being grateful for every little thing, even the adversities, even the negative things. And it changed my life. It got me out of that hell and brought me to where I am now. And I did it with nobody's freaking help. You know, there was, there was no one around me that I could rely on for anything positive, you know? So I had to figure it out on my own or I was literally going to die. And, uh, thankfully I didn't die. Thankfully I did figure it out. And now I try to help people with that knowledge. And I know it's, it, it's kind of a long story and it kind of, has a lot of parts to it, but you know, the basic gist of it is you are your thoughts. You are the physical manifestation of what your thoughts were two weeks ago and two months ago, two years ago. And if you're telling yourself negative shit, you're going to become negative and you're going to be beaten down and you're going to have loss and sadness. If you're telling yourself good stuff, 
and not cocky stuff, but good. Like, you know, you are worth it. You are worthy. You are good enough for this. You can do that. <clears throat> you know, you will become that. You will become something great. And I think uh, the more people learn how to do that, we may see a major shift in our planet population. You know, with uh, people not focusing on the negative all the time, they're focusing on the positive. It's uh, it's powerful stuff, man, and it, it is life-changing. And it sucks that I had to find it out the absolute worst way possible, but, you know, I'm, uh, I've got a bit of a thick skull, so that might have been the only way the message, message got through in the end. <laughs> well, firstly, I mean, thank you for – you know, being so courageous and telling a story because people need to hear that for two reasons. They need to hear it from all shapes and sizes. So when a Navy SEAL, when, you know, one of the strongest men on the planet tells of their journey, there's a lot of people, male and female, whoever it is, are going to go, oh shit, I thought I was just, you know, being a pussy. I thought I was weak. I thought, you know, whatever, insert negative label. And it reframes it. It's like there are so many people out there that are struggling. But another really, really important point that, that's come up a lot, and I just want to ask you if this was a, a kind of a, you know, internal monologue for yourself right when you were at, at, sitting on that bathtub, is, again, the judgmental, the outside, you know, who, who are um, projecting that they're doing fine and they're super judgy on everyone else, the addicts, the homeless, whatever. There's this... this kind of uh, dialogue that suicide is cowardice. How could they do that? So selfish. They left the family, blah, blah, blah. All the men and women I've had on the show who have been to that point have reported the same thing. In that moment, their wiring, as you said, the screws are loose, the screws are gone, whatever it was, their brain chemistry, their, their messaging was so distorted that they actually felt like they were doing the world a favor, doing the family a favor, and it was a selfless act by taking their own life. Now, obviously, the reality is, is the complete opposite, but that's how the brain tricked those people. And some, you know, actually jumped, actually pulled the trigger, whatever it was, and by a, you know, a miracle, they, they didn't pass away. Some caught themselves like you at the last minute. But for you, with your with your mindset, was was that feeling of being a burden to your family, to the world, an element in your you know moment on the bathtub there? You know, I think by that point, I think I was past the I'm a burden to the world stage because they'd already kind of ditched me. They, you know, my my family wasn't really talking; they weren't talking to me. My friends weren't talking to me. And, uh, so I kind of figured, well, that's, that's done and out. Um, all that's left is me in my own misery. So, you know, I think there was a bit of like maybe possibility of being a future burden. Uh, you know, a family wouldn't have to deal with it if, uh, if I wasn't around in the future to possibly pop up and become a problem. Um, you know, there was there. There's definitely an aspect in that moment of this is the right decision because basically I'm taking up space that doesn't need to be taken up, or I'm occupying space that shouldn't be occupied, or I'm consuming resources and I'm just an extra mouth to feed. And there's 
no reason to keep me going because it's just a burden on humanity as a whole <laughs> for me. That was my take on it. Cause you know, like I said, I'd already kind of lost my family by that point. Um, but then coming back to it, yeah, like I said, the, the future burden, I didn't want to be a burden like to my son in the future. Uh, and that may have been what kind of pulled me back was, you know, the thought of my son thinking or telling his friends, oh, yeah, my dad, he's just a loser. He just, you know, he committed suicide, whatever, screw him. I didn't want my son to ever have to feel whatever it is a person feels when they say that sentence. Yeah, I mean, it's so powerful. But I mean, back to that point, that's the thing is, is people in that crisis are in in that mindset of thinking that they're being selfless not selfish and they're doing it for their family and that's what's so tragic is finding themselves at that point now you know obviously there's a very powerful journey back and i think that you know that anchoring on gratitude i agree 100 percent. mental health just just all the shit we saw last year gratitude is absolutely the answer to so much so on the upswing, on, on this incredible recovery that you, that you made, kind of walk us through your journey back, you know, mentally and then also physically. Like you went from 220 to here you are, you just competed right before we started talking. So, can yeah, I, I'm can 100 I, pounds heavier than that now. <laughs> there we go. So, so what was, what does that look like? Well, you know, here's a, here's a little trick that may help somebody out there. This is something I learned because I was also smoking cigarettes when I was in this hell. And I was all screwed up on uh, crystal meth. Um, at some point, I, I thought that, you know, I'm addicted to two things rather than just one thing. Uh, maybe I should just quit the cigarettes because I don't have any money and I can't afford this shit. So I tried a trick. And it was something I, I loosely based it off of what I had learned watching A Clockwork Orange. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Yeah, it's set in the, the uh, psychiatric facility. Yeah, yeah. So what they did was they conditioned him to hate violence by injecting him with something that was nauseating, that made him feel literally sick to his stomach. And then they would keep his eyes open and force movies into his brain and uh, violent movies into his brain. So anytime he saw violence, he associated it with sickness. It's kind of like uh, classical conditioning with Pavlov's dogs. Um, what I did was every time I would take a cigarette out, and start to light it up i would imagine feeling sick in my stomach and then like make myself gag a little bit as i was doing it and then when i'd light it up and then i'd inhale i'd have this smoke in my face and i would imagine myself suffocating in that smoke and you know at first it didn't feel very real but with a few weeks of every time i lit up i would start feeling sick to my stomach and like try and gag myself to where I'd almost throw up um, and then imagine myself suffocating. It got to the point where I'd pull a pack of cigarettes out and I'd try to light one and I would start getting anxiety. Like, no, no, I don't want this. Fuck this thing. Get this away from me. And then boom, you know, after about a month, I was done smoking. I couldn't stand the thought of smoking. And so I thought, well, shit, that was really effective. <laughs> um, so I tried it with uh, with the crystal meth, 
And, you know, it started because I was still shooting it at the time. Um, I would imagine every time I'd shoot it, it would be pain going through me or I would burn my flesh from the inside. And I would imagine it kind of shrinking my blood vessels and rotting everything away. And it hurt so bad. And so it got to the point where I was like, fuck this. No, I'll just go back to smoking it. So I had already kind of kicked the shooting it part, got myself into smoking it. And, and that's a, a hard thing to do when most people, they progress from snorting it or ingesting it to smoking. And then if they're really bad, they may think about shooting it. But only the guys who are really fucked up go into that. See, I, I kind of almost started with shooting it because I had some insulin needles because I had been taking peptides to help with my recovery in the past. <clears throat> so I had these little insulin needles and I thought, well, you know, I've got these. Let's just try it out. So I'd been shooting it for a while and most people never come back from that unless they're in prison or in some forced rehab. Uh, in fact, I don't know anybody who's ever kicked shooting it by themselves. But uh, that little trick worked to scale it back for me. And then when I was smoking it, I just employed the same thing that I did with the cigarettes. And I told myself I was feeling sick and I was being suffocated by the smoke and I didn't like it and I was nauseated and and it took a little bit longer. It took me about a full year of being really dedicated. And and almost every time I would smoke, I would make myself feel sick. And uh, slowly but surely, it kind of worked because I started to have that same anxiety. Anytime I would start loading up a, a bowl or whatever. And uh, it got me to the point where... I didn't want to smoke. And this was, you know, after I had been kicked out of my house, um, I ended up living in that same storage unit that I trained at for a couple years or for a couple months, rather, um, trained there for about a decade. <clears throat> but, uh, while I was in that storage unit, I would just put the, the meth in like uh, a drink Gatorade or something and I would sip it. I would still smoke it, but I would still, it was rapidly declining. And then that was what it was. That was what helped me get to the point where as I was making my drive from Houston to Reno, um, I could step it down every day, just a little bit more. Cause at that point I also had to ration it out. Um, and by the time I got to Reno, it was done and gone. And I didn't want it. I didn't need it. I didn't have any withdrawals. I was good to go. Um, there was definitely some times where I thought, God damn, it'd be nice if I had some. But, you know, without having anyone around where I could easily get some, a, you know, 20 bagger or ounce or, or whatever, um, it was easy to kind of dismiss that feeling and then just carry on into the next day. But it was that gradual process of making myself feel sick. Every time I conditioned myself to no longer want whatever the substance was that I was trying to avoid, if that makes sense. 
No, it does completely. It's funny because actually when I was, I mean, God, I think eight, I've always been kind of a fan of, you know, science and stuff. And I remember seeing, uh, I think it was a news story on um, smoking cessation. And this one doctor was doing this this way and it had good results. And my mom was a smoker then. So I told her, as this little eight-year-old wannabe doctor, about this this technique. And she actually went to a doctor and did the same thing. And it, it wasn't so much imagining he basically said, go, you know, buy double what you normally smoke every day. And every time you, you smoke, I want you to smoke two or three back to back to back. And she would literally physically vomit to the point where she had that negative association with that cigarette. <laughs> nice. Nice. Okay. So it was uh, kind of like overwhelming the system and making it more of a labor than an enjoyment. Exactly. So, but it was yeah. scary though, is the one, you know, we're talking about illicit drugs and that's, you know, another whole discussion about forcing addicts into the shadows with, with, you know, illegal drugs. I wish they would remove prohibition and allow our addicts to be medical patients, not criminals. But, um, but what's, what's scary about alcohol is you can go, you know, go on a bender, go get shit faced, feel horrendous, puke all the next day. And then the following day after that, you'd be craving for drink again. So, you know, I've always said that's the one drug where people completely overdo it. It makes them horrendously ill and then they're ready for another round as soon as they feel better. Yeah, well, it's kind of a, a different but similar thing with the uh, with crystal meth. You can go for shit. I've gone for like eight or nine days straight. Uh, you completely lose your mind. After like the third day, you're probably clinically insane. So you do that. Then you sleep for 48 hours or 56 hours, you know, two and a half days. And then you wake up and instantly need more. You got to go back at it. And that's that. It's, yeah. It's <laughs> um, thankfully, though, with, with that one, it's hard to kind of overdose if you're smoking it or snorting it. Alcohol, you can overdose through poisoning. Uh, heroin, you can overdose easily, very easily. Cocaine, you can overdose by blowing up your heart. <laughs> um so with some of those drugs, it, it would be hard to recommend that approach. I don't think it would work without killing the individual. But, no, uh, I think cigarettes, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't recommend like doubling your heroin dose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, well, then physically, so you had this incredible mindset. And, and, you, and you know, for, again, as an observation, you've developed an incredible, um, what do they call it, visualization through coming out of the addiction. So I'm assuming now that, that even though you've been through hell and, and some elements you probably felt mentally weak because of, you know, battling and battling and battling. Now, as you came out, you had this, you know, you, you'd, you'd won. You'd won that particular battle. Tell me how that was then applied to getting the, the, the mass back, the strength back, and ultimately getting yourself enjoying competition again. Well, now, so during the whole darkness... I always had this idea floating around with uh, with the Travis in the back of the head. He always knew that I wasn't done, that uh, it was going to be a comeback journey. It was going to be epic. You know, the front Travis didn't believe that. But when I when I finally got clear, I'm in Reno. I'm staying at my parents' house. We've kind of made up and, and made amends and, you know, taking care of my mom 
I just wanted to go to the gym at first. Um, the easy decision without overwhelming anything was let's just go and work out, see how it feels. I'm getting the craving. I'm getting the itch. I want to go train. So I got to Houston or to Reno on the 7th of January or the 5th of January. And I went to the gym on the 15th and, uh, that first workout, it was weird. It was weird. I was weak as a kitten. And I remember fatiguing relatively quick. It was probably about 30 minutes and that was it. And I remember somewhere in the middle of it, I got this weird headache in the back of my, my head, my neck. Uh, yeah, I was basically really freaking out of shape and uh, really weak. But I enjoyed it. And afterward, I felt pretty good. Like physically, I just kind of felt like a small high. I felt good. I felt the endorphins, obviously. Um, and I remember telling myself, okay, you got to do at least three weeks before it's going to start kicking in because that's just what it takes when you start out training. Three weeks, it's going to suck. And then after that, your body kind of kicks into gear and it becomes fun. So I just kept going. And I remember the first time I tried to deadlift, uh, you know, maybe my third workout in, I put, I got up to 405 and I pulled it for three reps and it absolutely crushed me. I thought I had broken my spine and this is, you know, I've pulled from the floor on a normal bar at that point, 871. I've, I've pulled over a thousand pounds on, on elevated deadlifts and side handle deadlifts. I mean, we're talking, you know, 40% is destroying me at this point. So I was like, wow, holy shit. I'm looking at this mountain in front of me. Like how the hell am I going to climb that? How in the hell did I ever do the things I did? Because I literally feel broken right now, but, uh, it healed and I got the itch to go and train again. And I just kept doing it. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, slowly but surely the workouts got a little harder and that little, that itch in the back of my head, the inkling that said, you know, you're going to, you're going to do strongman again. That little tiny whisper got a little bit louder and every workout, it got a little louder and a little more clear. It was gaining momentum. And so I started to do my nutrition, right? Um, you know, just to be fair, the first, I think it was the first four months I was training and eating again, I gained something like 65 pounds. It might've been the first three months, <clears throat> but I gained 65 pounds back and, uh, not all of it was good, but there was a lot of muscle that was, you know, muscle memory had kicked in and <laughs> gotten me a long way. <clears throat> so that was, uh, that was definitely inspiring. And, uh, you know, the, the lessons that I had learned to get myself out of the darkness became just as important in continuing to be successful, uh, mainly finding gratitude and a sense of purpose. And that's, uh, that's something I should note now to get out of hell, to get out of an addiction, to kick that, you have to do a few different things. You've one, you've got to be grateful. You got to find gratitude. Uh, 
<clears throat> and then you have to cultivate that attitude of gratitude on a daily basis. Uh, one of the next most essential parts is you need to find purpose. Give yourself up to something greater. That that greater, in a lot of cases for a lot of people, becomes God and spirituality, and that's awesome. Um, spirituality is a big thing for me, but my purpose is what I really gave myself up to. I'm on a mission now. And so every workout had that driving force behind it of this isn't just a workout. This is a statement. This is a this is a shift in your reality that's going to affect humanity on some level. And uh, therefore, those workouts became something bigger than myself. And uh, I continue that now. I'm grateful for every day. And, you know, my purpose is my life. And uh, it's what keeps me going. It's what keeps me motivated. It's what keeps me through the injuries and all the setbacks. It's what keeps me focused and enjoying the process, enjoying the journey. <clears throat> and I think because I've learned to be grateful it keeps me humble. And if you're humble, you're not arrogant. And if you're not arrogant, your mind is open and you are learning. And I have learned so much more in the last four years of training than I ever did in the 23 years of training before that. So <laughs> that's where I'm at now. Gratitude and purpose. And it's so powerful that you say that because that's what I hear over and over again as well from these same people I've talked about before is, you know, first they they get through that darkness, then they begin that journey of healing. But, you know, a lot of these men and women, whatever that purpose becomes, whether it's, you know, some sort of altruistic practice, whether it's, you know, whatever that looks like, that is is the healing thing and then not only are they helping others whether it's you know coaching whether it's mentoring whatever it is that that those others are benefiting from it the person doing the helping is also getting so much more and it's so fascinating that you said when you started that gratitude you know mindful practice basically the euphoria you got from joy despite being you know knowing the high from opiates knowing the high from meth knowing the high from nicotine that push through all of them and i think that's such a powerful thing being being grateful and then that intrinsic thing that's built in all of us which is why it's crazy when you think about it that it's a complete you have to go away from your own biochemistry to be an asshole because when you're nice to people and you give and you do nice things your body literally rewards you with this sense of well-being yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's kind of a dopamine response, which is essentially what we're looking for with drugs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just, yeah uh, drugs are just a uh, synthetic means. And uh, for some people, they're easier to get than, than the dopamine, dopamine rush from doing the right thing or from helping others. You know, it's uh, – <clears throat> neurochemistry is an interesting thing in that it can be your best friend or if tapped into incorrectly, it can be your destruction. <laughs> and so it's these, uh, it's these little things like, you know, especially in my coaching practice, when I see my athletes kicking ass, that is 
one of the best feelings that I can imagine. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's obviously, it's a high, it, it feels great. And I get that dopamine response. I get that endorphin kick. Um, but it also lasts after the rush. You still feel good about it because you've helped somebody and you changed their life and you know what that does and you know how that feels. And so long after that initial kick from, hey, my athlete just won, you know, I can look back and say, you know, my athletes were really good and I feel really good having done something positive for another person out there. Yeah. Well, it's, and it's like you said, when when that, you know, the brain with the notebook <laughs> was was uh, back there and, you know, saying you're not done yet, you're going to do something good in this world. I mean, that's exactly it. You know, being being an elite athlete um, is an incredible thing. And as you touched on earlier, you know, I think what a what crushes a lot of these men and women when they finish their athletic careers is if they don't have something to transition to. And it's the same with my profession and associate professions. If you've identified as the firefighter, the police officer, the rescuer, and you've never really extended out of that, that kind of, uh, um, I'm forgetting the word now. Um, but anyway, that, that's how you see yourself. Then you, you hit a wall, but by being able to not only compete yourself, but invest in other people and and share their successes and watch them grow that is so healing for the human experience it is absolutely and and you know you you touched on it perfectly what we were talking about earlier when that athlete or or you know whatever it is you've been so focused on for your entire life is now gone and done or retired from and this this probably happens to just teachers or you know businessmen or or just people in the workforce when they retire they don't have anything to get up and do the next day they you get lost you, you lose that sense of focus and you don't have anything really to anywhere to put your mental energy uh you know an athlete looks in the mirror and he doesn't recognize himself and then his life kind of falls apart it's so common, like you said, because they, they've lost a piece of themselves. They don't know where to put that focus. They don't know where to put that, that purpose that they used to have. And so they need to fill that void with something new, some other focus, some other purpose. And, you know, I mean, when you, when you retire, it's <clears throat> start a new career if you're young enough and have enough energy or start gardening or start working out or whatever the hell it is you wanted to do all that time you were working, try it. Or if you didn't know what you wanted to do, make a list of things that sound interesting and start checking it off. <laughs> you might find something you love. Um, but the most important thing is, you know, don't sit down and start staring at the TV wondering what you're going to do all day. Because that's how we grow old. That's how we die. <clears throat> that's how we lose ourselves. If uh, you know, if we're in that kind of mindset. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, well, with that, I want to get to the Stoneman method and do some closing questions. I know we've gone over what we said we were going to do, um, but uh, one last thing with with before you saying you got hurt because you did more than you were ready for physically. How have you been able to pull on the reins this time round? And then, you know, where are you on that journey? Where are you now and where are you hoping to get to? 
Gotcha. Uh, well, so since 1997, I have kept a journal of my training. I write down every workout. I write down every set, every rep, every weight. But only, <laughs> only in the last few years have I actually gone back and studied which parts worked and which parts didn't. <laughs> so I had this great wealth of knowledge to, to touch on, but I never worried about it in the past. Um, now I look at which programs worked. I think through my programs a lot more in depth. Uh, there's a lot more planning involved with sets and rep schemes and exercise choices. Um, you know, it's it's so much more level-headed and planned out and a lot less insanity, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, now I, I break things into, let's just say, four-week blocks and – I try to increase or to do better or faster or whatever it is on each exercise during that four week before I switch it up into something else. And, uh, you know, it does a couple things. I've got a couple different ways that I do that because both of them work differently. And one of the ways is there's no planned weights. There's just planned sets and reps. So you're allowed to go a little crazy with the weight as long as you hit your sets and reps. The other way is we plan very much your rep, your weight, your sets, reps, and your planned weights. Um, the first way allows for a little bit more of a berserker mindset, which is kind of fun, but is dangerous if left unchecked. So it's only four weeks you get to do it. And then we move into something where you have to be a little more sane before your body breaks. And that's where we use percentages or, you know, planned rep schemes, planned weights. But then with the planned weights, let's say four weeks out, I have a planned max of 800 pounds on something. Well, that gives me four weeks to write that number down and then look at it and tell myself every freaking day I'm hitting 800 pound deadlift on January 31st. And by the time I get there, I have now walked myself through that deadlift so many freaking times, 500, 1,000 times, that doing that deadlift is just one more rep. I've already done it 1,000 reps in my brain. Pulling it from the floor in real life is just 1,001. And, you know, it's kind of surprising sometimes how easy it is when that happens. So I like to throw a little bit of both into training my clients and, you know, really looking back at what worked well for me, what was a little too much for me, what could have been better. I tweak all these things and I built my program around what worked and what didn't and what's worked for my clients and what could be improved on for my clients and, uh, you know, I take it from there. I start there. And then obviously each person I train is a little different. So my programs are always flexible. I, I keep it to where we can tweak it for the individual to make this basic template specific to his or her needs and goals. 
Now, with with the uh, the tactical space, just a tangent for a second. We were connected by Jeffro, who's a you know a, an amazing man and was a law enforcement officer for a long time. Um, what does just a kind of overview? What does your training look like if it's a police officer or firefighter coming to you? Well, if it's a, a police or a firefighter, um, we we sit down, we talk over the phone or or face to face. I try to find out what their specific goals are. And some guys just want to be better at their job. They want to be able to run faster, or, you know, carry someone out of a burning building easier or carry two people at a time out, whatever. <laughs> For the newspaper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, but some of them are actively competing in powerlifting or strongman. So obviously if they're competing in powerlifting or strongman, I gear them more towards those goals of, of raw absolute strength. And then I throw in some conditioning because I know they need it for their job. Now, if they're not actively competing, I throw in some raw power and strength building, but I put in a little bit more functional conditioning because that's basically what they're going to need for their kind of their line of work. Um, but yeah, it, it all comes down to, what their goals are, what they want to do. Um, but when it comes to their conditioning, you know, I like to use strongman training in that conditioning. So let's just say, for instance, I'm going to program a farmer's walk for a firefighter. Now, farmer's walk is you carry a weight in each hand and then walk for a certain distance. Um, if it's just for general fitness and on-the-job functional strength, that weight is going to be a little bit lighter for a much longer distance. I'd program, say, 200 pounds for 300 to 400 feet. <clears throat> now, with a uh, firefighter who's actively competing in strongman, I would keep that weight much higher and those distances shorter. Let's say 300 pounds a hand for 160 feet or, two, or 150 feet. So... Obviously, the work is a little more intense, but a lot shorter duration when they're trying to be strong for competing. Uh, but with that amount of work, they're still going to be able to do their job very effectively. Yeah. And when you say the uh, the conditioning, do you use medleys a lot with, with the, the work-related strength that you're training some of these guys? I try to throw medleys in uh, – for pretty much every phase. And it's usually some kind of a loading medley because a loading medley is just where you pick up an object and carry it for 50 to 60 feet, 80 feet, whatever. And you've got like four, maybe five objects you have to load, carry and load. <clears throat> I like to put those in because that's just general all around strength and conditioning. It makes you fast on your feet. It makes you fast while you're carrying something. It's uh makes you strong because whatever you're carrying is usually a few hundred pounds, a couple hundred pounds. So you're getting in, you know, a full 60 to 75 seconds of high intensity work with a lot of weight in your hands. And that carries over to life. It carries over to strongman. It carries over to pretty much anything you do. Yeah. Well, I know mean, a few of the exercises that I use, um, used to, 
to kind of really level up on my muscular imbalance and, and strengthen up my, my back with things like overhead yoke carries and um, the yoke, I mean, excuse me, the sled rope pull. So like a hundred foot rope and you pull it towards you as you're standing there. So even some of the, the, the lower weight just to create that that balance between both sides of the body and work on some of the, the weaknesses and CrossFit, for example, the, the back of the body, posterior chain, because of all the kipping, we tend to get a little uh, weak there. There's a lot of um, pronation in the movements, you know, so doing the open hand on, on the rope. So, you know, I found the strong man movements, strong person movements um, are uh, very, very pertinent to, you know, our professions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's strong, man. Strong man includes women. That's just how it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's what Kristen said, too. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, for people listening, so, then, I'm sorry, carry on. Oh, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you touched on it really well when it came to um, some of the movements and, and basically you develop weaknesses because of, you know, whatever modifications that you're making. But one of the, one of the biggest weaknesses people forget about when they're doing CrossFit or they're doing, uh, powerlifting or they're doing bodybuilding. Most of their movements are stationary. They're very much, I mean, there may be some jumping, but that it's a vertical plane of motion with strongman you have that vertical plane of motion and then you have to take it horizontally. So you're working a whole different set of muscles in a completely different manner by doing so. You now have to work unilaterally because you're walking on one foot than the other. Um, And when you're doing something like that, uh, and I guess this is kind of CrossFit, so it kind of blends in, but like that arm over arm rope pull, you're, you're working one side of the body and then the other side of the body. You know, you're having to brace differently. You're having to move differently and you're having to really work your balance at the same time and your coordination. Um, so I think that's when it comes to, and, and I use this term loosely, when it comes to functional training, I think there's nothing better than strongman training when you implement it correctly. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I mean, I think that when you look as a firefighter, if you look just at sleds alone, so if I'm doing a sled drag, it's no different than pulling someone out of a fire. If I'm doing a sled push, then it's the same actually as advancing a charge hose line. So there's so, you know, I found with the coaching I've done, if I'm training a bunch of firefighters and we start talking about Turkish get-ups and kettlebell snatches, you know, they're intimidated. And, and I don't mean that, you know, to be uh, patronizing, but they are a snatch, you know, a muscle up. I mean, those are things that you look at, like, how the hell can I do that? And as we talked about earlier, you, you think about self-doubt. You don't think about, oh, I want to learn that. You think about, I can't do that. But if I tell you, push the sled from A to B, and it's just like advancing a fire hose, it removes the skill portion. It removes the fear of looking stupid. And then they just put their hands on it and do it. So I, I find it's, it's great to get a buy-in from a lot of responders as well. That's actually a great idea. Yeah, you remove the the hesitation, I guess, because yeah, a lot of people don't want to look stupid when they're doing something. No, me included. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. <laughs> All right. Well, then, for people listening, let's get to to um, the Stoneman Method first. Where can people find that and and reach out to you? <clears throat> I've got uh, Instagram, Travis underscore Ortmeyer uh, on Instagram. It, just shoot me a DM. I check them 
pretty much daily. Um, I get a lot of people through that, or I get a lot of people through my website, Travis-Ortmeyer or Texas-Stoneman.com. Uh, I've got a contacts page. You just kind of you know scroll down till you find contact and uh, fill out a quick form with a name and maybe an email so I can respond and then a quick message as to what it is you're looking for. Uh, and that'll shoot me an email and I respond to those almost daily as well. Um, it's pretty easy to find me when you go through either of those channels. Uh, I do have a Facebook. I am not as good at checking the Facebook. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not a fan of Facebook either. So we're, <laughs> we're in agreement yeah, there. <laughs> so I highly recommend going through Instagram, Travis underscore Ortmeyer on Instagram or Travis dash Ortmeyer or Texas dash stoneman.com. Perfect. All right. Well, the first of the closing questions I love to ask everyone that comes on the show is, uh -oh. <laughs> is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different? Uh, so many books have affected where I'm at. As far as entertainment value, I love the Dark Tower series by Stephen King or the uh, Clan of the Cave Bear series by, I think it's Jane I.L. <clears throat> Those are pretty good. For motivation, I've got a few of them that I really liked. There's, uh, you know, Rise of Superman was pretty good, except he starts telling too many damn stories, and it's like, all right, get to the point. <laughs> uh, what Doesn't Kill Us is a great one about uh, Wim Hof and some of his methods. Um, I don't know. There's some other, there's some other books I like meditations. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, that, that's, that's, that's plenty. Thank you so much. All right. Brilliant. <laughs> All right. Then what about a, a movie and or documentary that you love? Ooh, favorite movie of all time. Probably still Terminator 2. Freaking love that movie. That was a great film. You know, actually, uh, they did the live stunt show of that film, and I doubled the the bad guy, the T-1000. So I'm trying to get him on the show, actually, Robert Patrick, but we'll see. Oh, really? That'll be kind of cool. That's freaking awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, and what about documentaries? Any of those you've seen that you've liked? You know, any of the uh, Planet Earth documentaries or Blue Earth, you know, about the oceans? Yeah. Uh, those are great. I freaking love those. I love the uh, cinematography. I love the way they shot their scenes. You know, I think they did a lot of it with drones when that was kind of a new thing. And they just, I don't know, they put them together so well. I love those documentaries. Yeah, they're amazing. One of my, my dream guests is uh, David Attenborough. I mean, he's just done an amazing oh, yeah. documentary okay. on his life. But uh, yeah, I mean, what he's seen with the, you know, the state of the planet over his whole career since the 50s. Uh, that's, a, that's a very powerful story to hear. Another good documentary is Supersize Me. I don't know if you've seen that one. It was uh, following a guy who spent 30 days eating nothing but McDonald's. Yeah, Morgan, someone, Spurlock. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's pretty disgusting. And, I mean, it, it goes hand in hand with – I cannot eat fast food. I just can't do it. It's so gross. And when you're not 
used to it and you're not addicted to it, you really taste how disgusting it is and then your body will reject it. Last time I had fast food was uh, it was a jack in the box. It was kind of in the on the way to a friend's house several hours away. I was hungry. I wanted a quick bite. So I got, you know, a bacon cheeseburger thing and uh, it looked all right. It smelled pretty good. I, I bit into it and it had zero flavor, like nothing. It was like sawdust. And I was like, that this sucks. I tried the fries. Same thing. Sawdust. I had to pour ketchup all over everything just to get some kind of flavor. And then uh, about 20 minutes later, I had to pull over because I threw it up. Oh, really? <laughs> Dude, my body just was not having it. Jack out of the box. <laughs> yep, that's exactly it, man. And that's not the first time that's happened with fast food. I just can't eat that garbage. It's so gross. Well, especially, you know, when, when you've learned how to make a good burger, for example, and you just take real ground beef and, you know, you put whatever you want on it, that that it just then that's your baseline. So when you have one of those patties from, from a, you know, McDonald's or a Burger King, you're like, well, this is so much worse than I could literally make in two minutes on my own. Exactly. exactly. Well, the problem is it takes more than two minutes usually because you got to do all the prep work. And that's why fast food's so... That's the allure of fast food is it's just so easy. Drive through, you know, the only energy you have to expend is pushing the electronic button to roll your window down. I mean, yeah, <laughs> so then you got, you got all the energy you expend trying to wipe your ass because you're so obese. So, it, it pay, you know, <laughs> there's a payoff there. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, we've got an epidemic of obesity in this country, well, in many countries. And I am I'm absolutely certain that's part of the problem or a major factor in the problem. Absolutely. absolutely. But yeah, I can talk all day on how nasty fast food is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, trust me, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> all right, so the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this show as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Uh, let's see. God dang, I'm overwhelmed with options at the moment. You know, some of the people that I would like, I, I think would be awesome to come on. Um, some of the world champions of old, you know, Bill Kazmaier always has interesting perspectives on things. World's strongest man, 80, 81, and 82. Um, I'm trying to think of who else would be fun. <laughs> I kind of think it would be interesting to see what Donald Trump had to say about everything. That would be an interesting conversation. I don't think I would like any of it, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not his greatest fan either. But I mean, I would, you know, definitely sit down and give him a chance to actually. I mean, like we have spent two hours talking as two human beings, so you never know where it actually go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it just gives some insight into his brain and how it works, and see where that mess takes you. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, let's see. I, I would have to narrow the choices down. I, I can't think of anyone else in particular. No, that's great. Actually, Bill is someone I've wanted to get on. Actually, you remember Jeff Capes as well? He's a fellow Brit. Of my, Absolutely. Yeah. I think he'd be yeah. an interesting one too. I've heard him talk before. So, Excellent. yeah, I think uh, that would absolutely be a good idea. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the last question before I let you go what do you do to decompress? To decompress, ooh, 
Well, post-contest, I usually just sit in my living room and watch movies and eat pizza and ice cream and whatever shit food that's not fast food that tastes good at the time. (laughs) Carbon up. Uh, But, you know, normally speaking, to decompress, um, I do like to read. I do like to read. I like to meditate. Uh, You know, I'd say those are my two go-tos to decompress. But physically to decompress, I like to compress. And I've got these leg compression sleeves that I put on. You know, they're the air sleeves that uh, blow up and they inflate. Yeah. And they uh, they put the pressure on your legs and help move lymphatics and fluid through and recover. And I like to put those on and then meditate for about 30 minutes. And I feel great afterward. Kind of do a visualization while it's doing its work. And then 30 minutes goes by. I feel awesome. Brilliant. I've never heard meditation coupled with compression before. That's an interesting one. <laughs> it's kind of it's got to be kind of a visualizing meditation. It can't be just one of those try to focus on nothing meditations. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, Travis, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for leading us through, you know, obviously your your successes and I know you're well back on track to to get some more trophies on your your cabinet, but you know, the, the other part of your story, some of the lows, as you said, I mean, when you tell the story, when you specifically, you know, a, a physically huge human being that's achieved all these athletic um, accolades tells a story like that, it really resonates with people because, you know, if it was, uh, again, I'm not trying to be snarky when I say this, but if it's a kind of wafy hippie dude telling about his feelings, people go, well, yeah, of course he's going to say that, you know, but when it's a SEAL, world's strongest man, you know, um, the, those kind of men and women, people really, really pay attention. So thank you so much for being so courageous and, and sharing your story today. Shoot, uh, you know, I appreciate that. You know, it's probably just important for people to realize that humans are people too. All humans are people. And uh, re- regardless of what it is we do, we're all made out of meat and blood and bone. And, <clears throat> you know, is far as it goes for me i've done some pretty cool shit with my life I've, I've got some pretty big awards and you know but i'm just a dude who likes to lift weights and has fun doing it that's pretty much all there is to it <laughs> so to be able to you know share some of my story to help some other dude who likes to lift weights or even some other dude who doesn't like to lift weights just to help another human being on their path through whatever this purpose that we're here for you know it's that's what life's all about man 